Well, as you know, if you're just joining us, we're in a study. We've been in this study now for about a year, about a year and a half, actually, going through the book of Mark. We've taken a couple breaks. And uh, so if you have your Bibles, we're going to resume our journey through Mark. If you join me in Mark chapter 11, verse 27, Mark chapter 11, verse 27, mark your place there. We're going to come back to it. A few years ago now, probably five, six years ago, my wife and I, we went down to Vegas to visit our daughter. And we actually went down, this is before we started the church, and we actually went down to take a look at property because the housing market down there was just ripe for the picking. I mean, there, was, there were houses down there that would, that would cost you three times what they would cost you now. And some of them were worth twice as much as what they were originally valued at when they were first built. So, I mean, there were steel deals. So not only was there an abundance of houses available, but there was an abundance of another problem that started to pop up. Squatters. The definition of a squatter is a person who unlawfully occupies an an uninhabited building or land. And so much to these realtors' dismay, they would often walk into a property and they'd find the property being lived in because no one had been in there for a while. So these people just went in and treated the place like their own, except for they didn't really treat it like their own. They took advantage of the place. You guys with me? Yes? Yes? Okay, now I know it's Super Bowl Sunday, but I need you guys to lock in on me. Lock in on me, right? Focus. So this week, I heard a story that was amazing. It's about a young couple that had gone on a a vacation, an extended vacation. They might have been snowbirds. I'm not sure what the context is, but, but they went on an extended vacation for four months, and they came back to their house, all excited about arriving home after being gone for so long. (laughs) Pulled up to the driveway, got their bags out, opened up the door and looked around and was like, wait a second. There was a, a bath towel hanging across the armchair. The lights were on in the place. Uh, they smelled fresh coffee brewing and they looked at each other really wondering if we walked into the wrong place, you know, this, this is our stuff, but, We didn't leave our house like this. And about that time, true story, about that time, some guy comes walking down the stairs in the the husband's bathroom and then had the unmitigated gall to say, who are you? And the man said, I'm the owner of this place. And the guy said, no, you're not. I'm the owner of this place. Get out. I'm not kidding. It happened. (laughs) And it happens because there's something about the mentality of a squatter. They believe that they have the right to claim as theirs what belongs to someone else. Now, I want you to put that on a burner, sit it on the back burner, turn it down, and let it simmer because we're going to come back to it. All right? Mark chapter 11, beginning at verse 27. Are you there with me? I'll be reading from the King James Version. For those of you who didn't have your Bibles, um, next time bring them, because sometimes I don't put the passages up on the screen, and you will need to follow along with me. So here we go. I'm reading out the ESV, so it might sound a little bit different than yours. 
And they, Jesus and his disciples, came to Jerusalem. Before I do that, let me set some context here. Let me summarize what's happened. Remember back, remember last week when I told you that Jesus had already made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. He got to Jerusalem, it's Passover week. He got there late Monday morning, walked in, or late Sunday night, walked into the temple, took a look around and went, hmm. And with great disdain, walked out and didn't do anything about what he saw. The money lenders were in the temple buying and selling and, and Jesus was hot. Jesus was hot, man, but he didn't do anything about it. So he went away, went down to Bethany, stayed there the night. And then on the way back that morning, remember, he saw the fig tree that was full of leaves. He cursed the fig tree. Oh, actually, he spoke to the fig tree. Peter said he cursed it later. And the thing withered at the roots. Remember that? So, so then Jesus now goes into the temple. This is Monday. Goes into the temple turns over the tables, drives the moneylenders out, sets up shop, and here's what he says. This is my house. But you have taken my father's house that was meant as a place of prayer for all nations, and you have turned it into a den of thieves. He says, this is my house. Get out. Right? So, that's what brings us to our text today. Mark chapter 11, verse 27. Oh, and by the way, when Jesus kicked them out, they felt some kind of way about that. Them being the, the Sanhedrin, they felt some kind of way about that. So we're going we're gonna to see. They were scared to do anything because they were scared of the people's. And there was, I think, they actually, you know what? I think they were scared of Jesus. Because, okay, let me just say this, because I know it's not in my notes or, or nothing. I don't, man, listen, I don't believe Jesus was some mamby-pamby mama's boy. I don't believe it, man. I don't believe he was like, you know, blonde hair, blue eyes, or long flowing hair with a, with a lamb over his back, singing like, you know, songs and stuff. He was a carpenter, man. And he wasn't a wood, a wood carpenter. He was a stonemason. You ever work with stones? Yeah. I have, look, I, I did some yard work around my house. And Mitch told me that I have to get, I'm not looking forward to it, by the way, because I had to dig out a bunch, of, a bunch of gravel. And when you're digging out gravel and you're working with those stones, it, it's laborious, man. It gets, it gets tiresome. And, and this next, this next sun, summer, I got to get these great big, like, like 85-pound stones, and move them around my side. I'm not looking forward to it. As a matter of fact, I think I'm going to call a work party for the brothers. <laughs> At least the brothers should say, hey, man, pastor. So the brothers are like, <laughs> but Jesus was a stonemason, man. I think he was an imposing figure. I think they saw the passion in, in his eyes and said, we ought not mess with this brother right now. We need to leave him alone. So the, so the Pharisees and the scribes went out, right? Jesus remained teaching in the temple. Then he left. Now we pick it up at verse 27. And they came again to Jerusalem. This is, this is, this is quite a long text that I'm reading today, but trust me, I know it's Super Bowl Sunday. I'm going to let you guys out of here. But man, this is good. 
And they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the, <laughs> the chief priest and the scribes and the elders came to him, and they said to him, "By what authority are you doing these things, or who gave you this authority to do them?" Stop for a second. Here's what they were saying: Which one did you get your authority from, the Sanhedrin? And which one of us gave it to you? Was it Priest James? Was it Priest John? Was it Priest Joe? Was it Priest Jimmy? Was it Priest Jamie? Was it Priest Joey? We don't know which one gave it. We, we want to know who gave you this authority, right? And I love Jesus, man. Jesus said to them, let me ask you a question. And you answer me. And then I'll tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from God? Was it from men? Now you answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, if, if we say from heaven, he will say, why then did you not believe him? But if we say from men, they were afraid of the people, for they held, they all held that John was really a prophet. And so they took the cop-out answer. Jesus, we don't know. And Jesus said to them, well, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. But I will tell you this. And he looked at them and he began speaking a parable to them. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to the tenants and went to another country. How many of you know that man was busy? Yeah. And when the season came, he sent his, servant to the, his servants to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent another servant, and they struck him on the head. Now, some, many theologians believe, since Mark is the only one that actually brings out the fact that, that, they, that they struck him on the head, many theologians believe that they're talking, Mark is talking specifically about the beheading of John the Baptist. Struck him on the head. Where am I at? Oh, five. Four. And treated him shamefully. And he sent another. And they killed him. And so it was with so many others. Some they beat, some they killed. And he had another, he had still another. A beloved son. And finally he sent him to them saying, Surely they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, Come. This is the heir. Let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. Don't have time to go into all this context. But in, in the Eastern culture, back in the time of Christ, if you inhabited an uninhabited place for more than three years without someone coming to check on that place, that place rightfully became yours. And most of the time, if, if an heir, a son would come, that was an indication that the father, the owner, had actually passed. So what they were figuring is that if, since the son is here, then the father's probably already gone. So if we kill this cat, we own the place. Got it? But they were wrong. And they took him and they killed him. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? Would he come and destroy the tenants? And he will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read in this scripture the stone that the builders rejected 
has become the cornerstone and this is the Lord's doing and it's marvelous in your eyes. And they, the Sanhedrin, were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people for they perceived that he had told a parable against them. You think? <laughs> wow. And so they left him and went away. I've taken for a title for this message this morning. It's not your stuff. It's not your stuff. This parable is clearly an, an, an allusion to the, the prophet Isaiah's writing in Isaiah chapter 5, verse 1 through 7, where God is the owner. The vineyard is clearly Israel and its leaders. The servants who were sent were the Old Testament prophets of Israel, as well as John the Baptist in the New Testament. And the son whom he loved, of course, is Jesus. The Jews also understood that the stone that Jesus was talking about was indicative of their own nation, which was rejected by other nations, but also which would be restored by God at the coming of Messiah. And many of the early Christians, including some of the Jews, understood Jesus Christ to be the Messiah. The chief priests here are the teachers of the law. The elders are the teachers of the law. They were representatives of the, of the Sanhedrin council. They were the religious leaders and the lawgivers of their day. They were the enforcers of religion in their day. The Sanhedrin held the authority on all religious matters. So, Jesus stepping into the temple and cleansing the temple was a direct statement. I am Messiah and this is my house. And in that moment, what he's doing is he's holding up a mirror to the religious leaders. And, it's, and he's saying to them, listen, it's clear to me that you're not willing to embrace who I am. It's clear. But I'm going to hold this mirror up to you and I want you to look at yourself. Look at yourself. And if you look at yourself in this mirror, what do you see? Look at yourself and then look at me. And then look at yourself and then look at me. And then look at yourself and then look at me. And then look at yourself and see if you see any resemblance of me. Because if there's no resemblance of me, you have no business in my house. Hmm. Yeah. So get out. In Isaiah 5, verse 1 through 7, the problem here is not, the problem here is, is the fruitless vineyard. For example, again, once again, you know, the, the fig tree depicting the fruitlessness of the nation of Israel. Um, this, this writing is like the fig tree. There was no fruit in the nation. But this parable that Jesus spoke today gives an emphasis not so much on fruitlessness, but on the wickedness of the tenants that are in the parable. And it's obvious that the, those that were in the parable are the self-righteous religious leaders of the nation of Israel. You guys still with me? Okay. Now I'm going to turn a little corner here. Man, our Lord Jesus has a strong dissatisfaction distaste and disdain for self-righteousness. <laughs> the true mark of a, of a true kingdom representative in the name of Jesus is one that comes in sub submission, humility, 
and fruitfulness. God hates self-righteousness. And I'll talk to you more about that in a few minutes. So the questions that the religious leaders asked Jesus was really designed to trap him. It was designed to force Jesus to admit that he had no authority to teach or act the way that he did in the temple. He had no authority to go in and, and, and circumvent what they were already doing. And so they were miffed at Jesus because he was operating outside of their authority. And so this question was meant to trap him. By what authority are you doing these things? Which one of us gave it to you? Did you notice that Jesus never answers the question? Instead, he answers their question with a question. And the question that Jesus asked is a clear implication that, that John's ministry was divinely authorized by God. And if John's message had God's approval, then Jesus' message also had to have God's approval because John attested that Jesus was Messiah when he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. <laughs> and since John's baptism was the preaching of repentance, which was a prerequisite to forgiveness, the religious officials were in a dilemma. You see, they didn't believe that John was a prophet from God, but they dared not say so publicly because they feared the people who held John in such high esteem. And if they admit that John was actually from heaven, then Jesus would rebuke them for not repenting and asking for forgiveness and then being baptized as a sign of their repentance. But this is where it gets bad, man. In their obstinance. They turn to what they feel is the only recourse they have. We can't decide, Jesus. We don't know how to answer your question. And so Jesus says, nor am I going to answer your question, but I'm going to lay something out for you. And here it is. You are squatters. My father made you tenants over his grace, not owners. But you've taken over and perverted my father's truth. And then on top of that, you refuse to acknowledge me that he sent me and then give me what's rightfully mine. Instead, you're trying to claim the fruit of my father's righteousness, those that belong to him. And worse yet, you're already plotting to kill me because of who I am. You see how the parables unfolded? Hmm. Well, Pastor Greg, those are the Pharisees back in the day. So what? What's the application for me here today? How does this apply to me? You know, after carefully reading through and studying this text, I believe that this passage should serve as a warning to us for us to be careful not to become modern-day Pharisees. I do. See, we're stewards over, over what God has left us to accomplish until he returns. He's left us in this vineyard that's designed to be fruitful and productive. And he says the harvest is plenteous and the laborers are few. 
He wants the tower, this tower, this temple that he built for us to dwell in, to be used to maximize the opportunity to go out and glean from the vineyard and to cultivate the vineyard in his name. He wants us to do it in his name, not in ourself, not thinking that we own something that doesn't belong to us because it's not our stuff. Everybody say, it's not our stuff. No, it's not our stuff. Matter of fact, we don't own anything. Psalms 24 verse 1 says, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The inhabitants and all they that dwell therein. Right? In other words, God owns everything. We don't even own ourselves. We don't. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and then again in, in chapter 7, verse 23, he says, you're not your own. You're bought with the price. The moment you gave your life to Jesus Christ and became a follower of Jesus, we became property of God Almighty. We belong to him. And at that moment that we became his, we forfeited all rights to tell God what to do with our lives. Somebody out to say amen, pastor. <laughs> Who said preach? Is that Joe? It's true. We sang it earlier, but I, I want to repeat it. I, I, had, I didn't even know that that song was going to be sung, but praise God for Mitch for, for tuning in on what the Holy Spirit wanted to teach today. As the redeemed, we don't even stand in our own righteousness. Not if we want to stand justified before God. We stand clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And so as followers of Jesus, we need to always be aware of self-righteous behavior. See, like the religious leaders in our passage today, if we're not watchful, pride and self-righteousness and the desire to control things can, can blind us to the truth that God wants to show us. I'm not a theologian. I mean, I study the scriptures a lot, but I don't consider myself a theologian. And certainly not on the same level as the scribes, the, the, the lawgivers and the teachers of the law. Those guys were amazing. They knew the scriptures verbatim. That's not me. And so it is, is it any wonder that if they, if they took the power and the truth of God's word and became prideful, how self-righteous they would become? Listen to me. With the invention of the internet and, and all the different versions of the Bible that are out there and all the different ways that we can study scripture and become proficient at, at God's word and, and what Jesus says about how we're supposed to live our lives. We family, this is just a reminder and this is, this is a warning to us. We need to be careful that we don't become self-righteous and let the things that we know about following Jesus cause us to become self-righteous and prideful. Man. Pride is the root of all sin. And pride never leaves us. We think it leaves us, but it doesn't. If you think that it does, 
Just ignore some of those signs that you get when you start thinking that maybe I'm getting prideful and watch what happens. Just quit doing what Paul says every day that we're supposed to crucify our flesh and we're supposed to die daily. Just forget about doing that and watch how pride rears its ugly head. It will. It's looking for any opportunity to rear its ugly head in our lives, you all. And if it manifests, it can blind us to the truth that we should receive. I'd venture to say that there may be some of you in here, including myself when I read this passage of Scripture, that said when we went over this passage of Scripture, I've already seen that before. I've already studied that. I'm looking at all of y'all. None of you. Just, everybody looking straight forward like this. <laughs> Not me, Pastor. Uh-uh. I did. I'm guilty. Hmm. I love what Dr. Crawford Loritz says about this. He says, there's a relationship, oh man, there's a relationship between pride and truth. The more truth we know, the more prideful we can become. The more you, the more you know about truth, the greater the opportunity for cry, pride to creep into our lives. Pride and truth produce self-righteousness. The pull towards self-righteousness is subtle and deceptively strong. Just look at the religious leaders during the time of Christ. But the cure to self-righteousness is looking at myself and then looking at the cross and comparing the two. Hmm. Hmm. Do I look like Jesus or do I look like myself? I was thinking as I was preparing this, about how patient God must be towards all of us, and especially towards me. And we have to be careful not to abuse the grace of God for grace's sake, family. I was taking review of my life as I, as I thought about, you know, pharisaical behavior, and I can't even count how many times God sent someone to me. Brings me to tears when I think about it. How many times someone sent, God sent someone to me that spoke a word of truth and I knew in the moment that it was God and I refused to listen. And I'm going to take the liberty to be like Paul. And such were some of you. If it landed on your toes, I just said, say, ouch, pastor. Man, I love, I, I love you, man. I, I got to tell you the truth. We have to be careful. We have to be careful. If we want to look like Jesus, we have to be careful. Those years that I stubbornly rebelled against God's voice and God sending people to me, I missed out on some of the greatest blessings that God had in store for me. I found myself praying, God, please redeem the time Please restore the years that the locusts have eaten. Please forgive me for all those times that I, that I rebelliously resisted your voice. Please forgive me. I've done it. God is always speaking. He wants us to hear his voice and be submissively obedient the first time. Amen? 
Wrapping it up here, finally, the, the expression, the stone here, the stone that the builders rejected is a messianic title that's used to pronounce judgment on the nation of Israel against those who refuse to believe. You find it in the Old Testament, in the book of Isaiah, chapter 8, beginning at verse 14 and 15. You see the passage script up there. You might want to write it down. And then again in, in the New Testament in Romans chapter 9, verse 32 and 33, and 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23. And in all those passages, both Old and New Testament, the message is the same. That Jesus is a stumbling block to those who walk in self-righteousness. He's always going to be a stumbling block to those who walk in self-righteousness because pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before what? Fall. Yeah, praise God for that. On the other hand, for his church, he's the cornerstone. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20 through 22, and 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. Mitch, if you can come on ahead and work. Where's Mitch? Oh, <laughs> it's the second week in a row, man. <laughs> Okay. Yeah, Mitch, about this time, you probably need to be coming in about this time, Mitch. Everybody say, we love you, Mitch. Love you. We do love you, Mitch. <laughs> what lessons can we learn from our text today? What lessons? Here's the first. We should never underestimate our resistance to change. Never. Because our resistance to change is subtle, but it is always there. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if you will answer the door, I'll come in and sup with you. But you can, you, can, you can hear this knock, and you can hear it, and after a while, if I keep doing this, you'll, 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 you'll just kind of like filter it out, and you'll hear me talking, and the knock won't bother you anymore, and after a while, the knock will look, it'll sound like this, and it'll sound like this, and it's the same knock, and it's the same knock, and it's the same knock, but you've tuned it out. And Jesus is still knocking on the door of our heart, and we're not listening, and so we don't open it up. Because we don't want to change. Hmm. Father, thank you. Thank you for tender hearts that hear your voice, won't follow the voice of a stranger. Tender hearts that will resist the devil who comes to give us the opportunity to resist change. Thank you for obedient spirits. Thank you for obedient spirits. Here's lesson two. Never underestimate your tendency to resist God. Pride is always pulling at us, always telling us to resist what God wants, but God is always speaking. He's always speaking. The question is, will we tune in our ear and hear him speaking, determine what he is saying, and then do what he tells us to do about it? Amen? Here's, here's number three. 
Never underestimate your desire to use God in the gospel for your own selfish reasons. I have been guilty in the past of using of beating people over the head with the gospel because I want to see him change. But I've come to realize I can't change anyone. It's the Holy Spirit's job to change. It's my job to, to live a life that's compelling. I live a life that, that, that is, 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 is the modeling after what Jesus has shown me. It's God's job. It's the Holy Spirit's job to, to convince someone that they have an opportunity to change and then to touch their hearts so that they will. Never use the gospel as a way of leverage over someone. I'll close with this. There's a bit of Pharisee in all of us. And like Paul said, we're not to put our confidence in the flesh. Our confidence must be in Christ and Christ alone. Will you stand with me? Father, every now and again, I have the, the privilege, as difficult as it is, to bring your word from an angle that causes us to examine ourselves. Today is one of those days. Father, I know just about every single person in here, and I know that their heart is passionate after you. I know that they love you. But I also know, Lord, that there's, there are those of us that at times hear you but don't want to do what you tell us to do. And if we're not careful, that disobedience and rebellion can lead to pride and arrogance and even obst obstinance. Father, my prayer today is that if there is any hint of resistance or rebellion in any of us, that you turn the searchlight of the Holy Spirit onto the deep crevices of our heart. Shine the searchlight on those areas that may not have been completely given to you. And I ask in the precious name of Jesus that you purify our hearts. And as the psalmist said, that you create in us a clean heart, create in me a clean heart and renew a right spirit in me. Jesus loves you. Jesus gave his life for you. So that you can be free from the things that bind you. The things that hold you captive. So if there's anything in your life that you've been resistant to give to God. Let me tell you the only thing that is sure in this life. Is change. 
Give that thing to the Lord today.